Good morning. Anybody ever been with somebody over a long period of time and all of a sudden they do things that you surprise you, you didn't realize and you kind of get the feeling like, who are you? I thought I knew you and I don't know you. So after several years of marriage, my wife started eating coleslaw. And I'm like, who are you? And she's still eating it. I, I don't understand. But, but sometimes you, you think you know somebody. You think you've got them figured out. And they do something to surprise you, right? Well, today we're going to see the disciples come face to face with Jesus in a very odd way. And I'd say that they thought they knew him. And after today, what we see, they're going to find out that maybe they really don't. I'm going to try to scoot this up, see if that helps. Any better? Checky, checky, checky. Hello. Hello, starshine. Okay, we'll see. We'll work it out. I trust my sound text back there. We've got a wall of them. So. We're going to read, now today is going to be a little bit different than normal as far as our scripture reading goes after the public reading. Public reading is going to be pretty straightforward. You're going to be used to that. But we're going to, uh, we're going to dive into the merged gospels. Anybody familiar with the merged gospels? Okay. It's a, it's a, what this guy's done, Gary Crossland is his name. He's taken the four gospel accounts and he's merged the accounts together, which that's not really weird, but he's put them together in a way that you don't lose a single word of any of the gospels and put it into one continuous story. Now, I don't always agree with where he puts stuff. I think I said that a couple weeks ago. But, uh, but it's, 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 they, there's an audio version of this and the print version, and he usually does it for donations. So they have a suggested donation, but... Um, what we're going to do is we're going to read Matthew's account because we're in the book of Matthew and we're seeing Jesus as the king, as Matthew portrays him, the king of the Jews, the king of the universe. And that's going to be our base account, but we are going to bring Mark and Luke along for the ride and then bring them all together in a bus in the merged gospels. And we're going to actually work from the merged gospels account of what we're looking at today because there's so much detail there which really helps us process this. So... If you would, please stand. We're going to read Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And we stand because this is God's Word. And that's awesome. And He's awesome. And so out of reverence, we stand up as we read this holy, precious, powerful Word. And when He got into the boat, His disciples followed Him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Let's pray. God, we have heard the slightest whispers of your greatness. We have seen the gentle movements of your grace. 
And I pray that today, by the power of your Spirit, as your Word is spoken, God, that you would make us crinkle our foreheads and say, Who is this? Who is this God? And may we, if we need to, God, put our hands over our mouths and agree with Job when we say, I've heard of you before, but now my eyes have seen you, and I repent in dust and ashes with my hand over my mouth. Show us, reveal to us who you are today, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm afraid that we are definitely in danger of taking this passage today and yawningly read through it and say, oh yeah, that's where Jesus come to see. But over the course of the next hour or so, I hope that that is not the case. So what I'm going to do uh, real quick is read through Mark 4, 35 through 41, and then Luke 8, 22 through 25. If you're taking notes, you might want to write that down. Those are the parallel passages, Mark 4, 35 through 41, Luke 8, 22 through 25. So let me just read those. I'll read them back to back, and then we'll read the merged Gospels account. Oh, I've actually got them up here. And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Whoa, I've got the King James. Oh, we'll, we'll roll with it. When even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him, and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose, and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And now Luke's account, four verses, Luke eight twenty two through 25 Now it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples, and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, again, I hope that you're not uh, going, Okay, yeah, we've read that, we hear it, we get the story. Stay with me, because... What we're going to do now is I'm, we're going to work through the Merged Gospels account. I'm going to read it through so you're getting it four times and then five times as we go back through it. So I hope, I hope that don't bother you. I hope that's not a problem. I hope you're not going, golly, can we just move on? No, we cannot move on. We are not going to move on. We're going to settle down right here today and focus on this. So here's the Merged Gospels account. And it came about in one of those days when evening had come, he stepped into a boat and his disciples followed him. And he said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. And they set out. And leaving the crowd, they took him along just as he was in the boat, and other boats were also with him. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And behold, there came a great quake in the sea, 
And there came a great storm of wind that descended on the lake so that the waves were dashed into the boat so much that the boat was being covered and they were filling up and in danger. And he was sleeping in the stern on the cushion. And approaching they woke him saying, Lord, teacher, master, master, save us. Do you not care that we are dying? And being aroused, he rose. He rebuked the winds and the surge of water, and he said to the sea, Be silent, be still. And they stopped. And the wind died down, and great calm came. And he said to them, Why are you timid? Where is your faith? Do you still have no faith, you of little faith? And they were afraid with great fear. The men marveled, and they said to one another, Who then is this that commands even the winds and the sea? And they obey him. Woof. <laughs> Man, that's good. It's, 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 it's awesome to kind of bathe in that all week long and then come and sing these songs that are picked out specifically for that. My Lighthouse, you know, Great is Thy Faithfulness, Tempest, and all this stuff. And I'm going, yes, yes. So we're going to start here, uh, back here at this first section. We're going to go like we always do, section verse by verse, kind of section by section. Through this passage. So we start here. And it came about in one of those days when evening had come, he stepped into a boat and his disciples followed him. And he said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. And they set out. And leaving the crowd, they took him along just as he was in the boat, and other boats were also with him. So this is where we left Jesus and the disciples last week after he had confronted a couple of guys who each said that they wanted to follow Jesus. And we concluded that passage with Matthew 8, 23, which said, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Okay? Our conclusion from that was that we weren't sure if the two confronted went with Jesus or not, but we do know that those who were the chosen, committed disciples of Jesus were headed with him across the lake. We see from our passage today, and especially from this merged Gospels account, that there was more than one boat and other boats also were with him. So there were, there were probably at this time, according to most commentators, all 12 of Jesus' disciples, which had been chosen by him and who would be sent out by him later. So at least, at least these 13 men, Jesus and his 12, were in boats headed across the lake at his direction. Now, one thing I want you to pick up from that is if, if there are only 13 of them and there are boats... That means these were small boats, okay? Thirteen guys on multiple boats, maybe four to a boat, maybe one guy sitting in the middle. You know, well, so, you know, sorry, Judas, we got a bad feeling about you. You don't get a seat. You get to sit in the middle. I don't know how that worked, but anyway. So these were small boats, okay? Um, and we saw last time that they were headed to the Gadarene region, which I'm going to give you a map so you can see kind of their journey So this is the Sea of Galilee, um, and they're headed up from Capernaum up at the top down to uh, what that says, Gergasa, which is the Gadarene region. So somewhere between Capernaum and Gergasa in the Gadarene region, they've got a little uh, notch there. Maybe that's where it happened. We don't know. But somewhere between there and there, what we read today happened. Okay? So, And we'll see next week what happens when they get to the Gadarene region, which is crazy too. Um, So somewhere out in the midst of the lake, we get what we're looking at today. Now keep in mind, Jesus had said that they were leaving. Jesus had said they were going to cross the lake. Jesus had said they were going to go to the other side. 
And as we've seen in the total account that we've read already, they are heading directly into a nightmare of a storm. And as it also turns out, Jesus was dead dog tired. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. Okay? Now we know that Jesus had been doing a lot of ministry. Teaching, healing, delivering, being pressed in by great crowds everywhere that He went. And let's not forget, Jesus was truly God and truly man. He was God in a bod. Okay, we could say it that way. Probably shouldn't, it seems irreverent, but yeah, Judy gets it. Now, there have been councils about this, great church councils about how to reconcile was Jesus man or was Jesus God? And yes is true for both of them. Uh, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus slapped Arius at one of these councils because Arius was saying Jesus wasn't equal with God and St. Nicholas couldn't stand it after a while. Walked across the room, smacked him. So this is like a source of friction in the church. But we know that Jesus was truly God and truly man. Okay, you've probably heard fully God and fully man. True, that, that's all right. Truly God and truly man is better. Okay? As such, he was limited by his physical constraints. He was in a human form. And here in his human form, he had worn that body out. He was tired. I wonder if maybe this is why he chose a boat to get away from the crowds. Crowds can't follow you in a boat. If they do, they... Got to have jet skis or something, and you know, I guess we, we know where they can get them. But yeah. So again, these were probably very small boats, and Jesus knew that crowds couldn't fit onto one of these crafts. And as they sailed, the rocking of the boat rocked Jesus to sleep. Not that he needed much help, I don't think. You ever just hit the pillow and pass out? I mean, you're bam, I'm done. This is, seems to be what happened with Jesus, which makes perfect sense. And again, it might make perfect sense, but it turns out that it's an awfully unfortunate time for the rest of his traveling companions because here's where things get sideways. Now, read this. Listen to this. And behold, there came a great quake in the sea, and there came a great storm of wind that descended on the lake so that the waves were dashed into the boat so much that the boat was being covered and they were filling up and in danger. Now, let me ask you something. Anybody ever had anything perilous happen while you were at sea? Anybody? Oh, I've got a story for you. Okay? I've actually had a near-death experience on the sea. And I really have. I'm I'm really going to share that with you all. So, I'm not talking about, oh, my my boat's leaking a little bit, or, oh, this is really choppy. I'm talking about you're afraid you're going to die out on the sea. Okay? Not just a little green or seasick on a cruise. That's not peril at sea, okay? I'm talking about getting caught in a storm with waves and fear and panic and such. Again, I actually have. Some of y'all have heard this story. I'm going to tell it again anyway. So I was in the Philippines on a short-term disciple-making trip in 2005, and it was the last day before we were supposed to come home, which that's always when things happen on mission trips, and it's the last day before you come home. Sorry, y'all, but I know Becca's gone. Just it's the last day. <laughs> but they had taken a boat. We, uh, I was with two guys who had been there previously, and they said that when they were there before, they had taken a boat out into the Sea of China, 
which is on the northwest corner of the Philippines, and that they went out and that the water was beautiful and clear and that they could see coral and all these beautiful fish and all this. I'm like, dude, I'm down. Yes, let's do this thing, you know. So we, we, we go up to this local guy who's got this holdout canoe with a motor on it, okay, and we get it and he takes us out about a mile into the Sea of China. Beautiful, right? No, not beautiful. When we get out there, the waves start... And I'm like, uh-huh, all right, all right. And I look down at the water, and it's all murky and dirty. And I'm like, this is not... Cl- I, can, I can see nothing. I can see nothing. And so before, we ever, before the three of us ever got out of the boat, we're like, we shouldn't do this, okay? Because all we had were goggles and snorkels, snorkels and gargles, whatever you want to call them. And, and, and us in our swimming trunks, and we were like, we, we, we better not do this, okay? So turn the boat around, and as we're going back to the shore, man, it starts storming. And when I say storming, I mean storming. And I mean wave. And it like rained so hard it felt like needles hitting you. And I noticed that we weren't going straight back to shore because we couldn't. We couldn't traverse the waves in this little holdout canoe thing. And dude just like back to and I've got my hands on each side of the boat, and I'm squeezing so tight. My chest is tight. My back's tight. My neck's tight. I've got veins popping out in my head, and I feel like I'm going to pull the sides of the boat off. I'm like, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? You know, and we're going back. And, and it takes us about an hour to get back. What had taken us like 15 minutes to get out, it took us about an hour to get back. And we're taking this slow, gradual diagonal toward the shore. Because we just couldn't go across the waves. It would have it capsized us. And I thought we were going to die. Literally. And I just remember thinking, my wife's going to be so mad at me if I die on the last day of our mission trip on, on, on a leisure trip. You know, we're out here, you know. But we did get back, okay? We did get back. And after that very gradual diagonal line got done, I unclamped my hands from the side of the boat. I literally kissed the ground. I I kid you not, sand in my face. I didn't care because I thought I was going to die. We didn't die, praise God. It was not fun. It was very scary, very scary. Of course, we asked the local guy who was standing at the... Was that bad? He's like, just raining, just raining, just raining. You are not telling the truth, liar. <laughs> but he was used to it. You know, he, yeah, it's just, him, it's just raining. And see, what you got to remember is so many of these guys in these boats were fishermen. They grew up around that lake. They were familiar. It was, it was very common for bad storms to happen on the Sea of Galilee. One commentator notes this. It's a pear-shaped lake, which you saw from the uh, map, eight miles wide and 13 miles from north to south. And it, the, the lake itself lies 680 feet below sea level. And it goes on down to the Dead Sea, which is even further under sea level or below sea level. And then it says this, The high hills that surround this lake are cut with deep ravines that act like great funnels drawing violent winds from the heights down onto the lake without warning. Okay. In Matthew, the word for the storm is seismos. Okay? You ever just, you ever been in a, well, this morning we had all these doors open because it smelled like paint in here. And when you got that door back there open and this door here open and that door, you got wind tunnels that get created. And that's exactly what happens on the Sea of Galilee. It's like somebody just opens the windows, all the windows, and, and all the winds rush down onto this lake and it just 
It's like it just churns up that water like a mess. And Matthew says a seismos came. Seismos. Now, what's that make you think of? Earthquake, right? Seismic activity. Waves rise and crash over the deck. Some writers note that the boat is covered in a sense that it would appear to sink in the troughs between the waves. But these are seasoned sailors. They've seen this before. Or have they? Or is this a a storm like they've never seen before? Because these guys are panicking. These seasoned fishermen who've spent years and years out on this lake are freaked out. So something's going on here beyond just a normal bad storm. The consistent storms, eh, they could deal with those. But they didn't know what to do with this. They didn't know what to do with this storm, with this event. And they were all of them, fishermen and all, freaked out. Now, it's interesting to note too, Ray Vanderlaan, if you've watched his stuff, he, he mentions that the Jewish mind sees great bodies of water as frightening things. They see it as the abyss, a place of death and evil. They actually refer to it as Sheol. When they talk about the place of the dead, a Jewish mind would think about a big body of water. So they just had this thought of water, bad, death, that kind of thing. And this storm was just reinforcing that thought. It was of seismic proportions. One could say it was of biblical proportions if they wanted to. And some people say this storm was of supernatural origin. Some say God did it. Some say maybe the devil did it. Either way, this was an odd, harsh, rough storm that none of them were used to. And interesting, interestingly enough, it doesn't mention rain. Doesn't mention thunder, doesn't mention lightning. It says quaking and wind. The passage says there was a great quake and a great windstorm. So it's like the basin of the lake was shaking under them and the wind was pushing them and the water around them. These small boats were being dashed by the winds. The waves were coming up over the boats and the water was filling up the boats. Simple math for a sailor, boat on water equals good. Water on boat equals bad. Okay? That's some, that's some sailor math for you. And they were all freaked out. The passage says they were in danger. Things did not look good. And Jesus, remember, he's asleep. But not just asleep. And he was sleeping in the stern on the cushion. Some of y'all need a good cushion here on Sunday morning so you can sleep a little better, right? Yeah. Preaching, preaching is one man talking and another man's sleep is all it is. <laughs> so sleeping's one thing. Anybody ever sleep on a bus going to school and your head falls forward and you hit the seat in front of you or hits the window and gets bounced back? Oh, I forgot, homeschoolers. We're not, we're not, <laughs> what are you talking about? I, in a bus, what is that? I'd fall asleep on the bus and then my head would fall forward into the window beside, or just let it bounce on the window as I'm driving up the road. That was not an ideal place to fall asleep. Would it have helped to have a pillow or maybe a cushion on those occasions? Yeah. It would have felt awfully good and would have helped me to sleep better. Pillows, cushions help us to sleep better. And it shows that we're going to sleep on purpose. So Jesus climbed in the boat, found the cushion, and says, I'm going to sleep. This was not an accident. He didn't fall asleep there in the boat with his head. We got John yesterday. Sorry, John. Driving up the road and John fell asleep and I hit my brake real hard. It went like that. And we did it on purpose, just so you know, John. I don't know if you knew that or not. 
So Jesus found a cushion in the boat and had purposefully laid down and purposefully went to sleep so that he could purposefully sleep well. And he was doing it. He probably had slobber coming out of his mouth. Okay? That's when you know you're sleeping when you've got slobber coming. He looked like me on Sunday afternoon, right? Kids slamming doors, yelling at each other, phones ringing. The world's coming apart and I'm on the recliner and I'm out. That's what's going on here with Jesus times about 1,000. The boat he is in is getting rocked by a windquake, we'll call it. And Jesus is sleeping on the cushion. On purpose, out like a light. His guys though, they ain't sleeping. They're coming apart at the seams. And approaching, they woke him saying, Lord, teacher, master, master, save us. Do you not care that we are dying? That's where I got my line, by the way, when I was in the boat. These seasoned fishermen, these seasoned boatsmen, these seasoned lake folk were in a panic. They're wet and afraid for their lives. And they do the most natural thing possible, right? They wake up the carpenter who's asleep on the cushion. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Wake the carpenter up. We need help. What? <laughs> what, what do they want him to do for him? Bail? Get him up. We need another bucket. Wake Jesus up. I don't know what they wanted him to do. But they went to him. Lord, teacher, master, master, save us. Again, I'm not sure what saving them looks like here. But they come to him hoping that he can. They had seen him heal and deliver and work works that no one else had ever done. Maybe he could do something here. Their main problem wasn't their doubting his ability to save them. Their main problem was shown in that last question. Do you not care that we are dying? They may have believed he could do something to save them, but they had lost the confidence in him that he wanted to. Go back to the leper. I know that you can heal me if you will. They had stopped believing that he cared. They had lost their confidence in his desire to help them. They questioned whether or not Jesus, their Lord, their teacher, their master, cared for them or not. Do you not care that we're dying? Do you not care, Lord? Do you not care that we're suffering? Do you not care that we're struggling? Do you not care that I am hurting? Do you not care? Anybody ever ask that question? Or just jump to the conclusion that he doesn't care? Anybody? Some of you may be there right now. God obviously doesn't care about the situation I'm in because if He did, He would do something about it. Maybe it's your life, your job, your marriage, your kids, your health, your finances hanging in the balance. And God should care about these things, shouldn't He? Because we sure do in our man-centered theology. God should be concerned about me and my struggling and my suffering. Do you not care? Am I not the center of the universe? And the answer is yes, God does care. And He is resting confidently and casually on a cushion with omnipotence resting there with Him. Why? 
Is he tired like Jesus was? Well, God's not tired. We'll talk more about that in application. So how did Jesus respond? And being aroused, he rose. He rebuked the winds and the surge of water, and he said to the sea, Be silent, be still. And they stopped. And the wind died down, and great calm came. Wow. Now, just, just take a few seconds and picture this. Chaos. Mayhem. Fear. Death. Abandonment, storm, waves, wind. Jesus stands up and says, be silent, be still. I don't know if he like proclaimed it or if he just said stop. I don't know. Before he could wipe the sleep out of his eyes, he spoke to the winds and the waves. It says he rebuked them by saying, be silent, be still. Now either... Y'all, either that's pure idiocy or it is raw, unbridled power. I'll tell you one story about a guy who has this kind of power. It's my friend Bunky. Y'all don't know Bunky. I went to uh, Walt Disney where I was like, what? (laughs) You know a guy named Bunky, first of all, that's weird. Second of all, she's got this kind of power. Well, let me tell you what happened. We're at Disney World. I'm with Bunky, and we're at one of them tram stops, and it is pouring the rain like it did most of the days we were there, actually. It's pouring the rain. And he said, man, I wish this rain would stop, and it went. (laughs) And then it started again. It literally stopped for like five, ten seconds, and it started again. I said, do that again. He said, nah, just do that every now and then. (laughs) I don't know what happened that day. It was funny, though. I mean, he literally said, I wish this rain would stop. That's a true story. And so, yeah, Bunky never spoke to the rain again. I never saw that happen again. But Jesus stands up and He speaks to the waves. He speaks to the wind. And they stop. It's obviously, obviously not idiocy because after He said it, they stopped. The wind died down and great calm came. Jesus said, basically, like a parent that's had enough, that's enough. Cut it out. I prefer knock it off. Knock it off. But Jesus said, be silent, be still. And that's what happened. And a great calm came. Now, anybody ever make a wave pool in a swimming pool? You're jumping up and down and you're flapping your arms. You've got one of them rafts and you're doing this number. And the waves are whoosh, and the sides of the pool are caving in. And whoosh, whoosh. Your mom's saying, stop it. <laughs> And you're like, whoa, whoa, and there's little kids in there like, oh, no, we're going to die. And then mom says, knock it off, and you stop. But the waves are still going, right? And they got to die down. That ain't what happened here, y'all. Jesus stood up and said, be silent, be still. And a great calm came. Get the picture again. From waves over your head, wind whipping, and the very foundation of the earth seemingly shaking to nothing. Glassy sea. Perfect calm. And I would imagine a deafening silence. Which was followed by this. And he said to them, 
Why are you afraid? Why are you timid? Where is your faith? Do you still have no faith? You have little faith? Ouch. I would think they would have preferred to hang on to the silence for a little bit more. What a stinging rebuke. Matthew's words in the ESV are, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Why are we afraid? Why are we afraid? This makes me think of another story on another missionary trip. Flying to Africa over the Mediterranean Sea. And we are in an awful storm. You could see it underneath us. You could see the lightning and planes bouncing all over. I hate flying. And this plane is doing this number. And my wife's asleep. And she wakes up and she looks up and she's like, oh, how pretty. And I'm like, you can see the storm, she said. I'm like, yeah, I can see it. I can feel it. And I can imagine that these disciples felt something a little similar. I can imagine them thinking, oh yeah, sure. You're asleep in the middle of all this. You wake up with your God self and say, shut up, and it gets all calm-like. But the sting of his rebuke had to kind of temper that frustration. He was calling out his guys for a lack of faith. A lack of faith in his caring for them. And a lack of faith in his ability to see them safely through this storm. He had said, let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side of the lake. Did they think he didn't know? Did they think he didn't have the power to get them to the other side? Did they think he didn't care if they got to the other side or not? Did they have a lack of faith to not think that he would see them safely through this storm? And they did. They had a lack of faith and it had to sting when he said it. Do you still have no faith, you of little faith? After seeing all that you've seen, after hearing all that you've heard, after knowing me, after me choosing you to be my guys and still you have no faith? The word for oh you of little faith is the Greek word oligopistos and it literally means little faiths. He called them a name. Little faiths. Those who trust too little. And boy, we can learn something. All of us can learn something there. You trust too little. Imagine hearing that from your Lord after seeing what you had just seen. All those things they had seen and heard over the past few months or so after watching this crazy lake lay down like a whipped dog. And then Jesus chides them for their lack of faith. How did they react? Well, uh, hmm, uh, well, uh, Jesus, I'm, uh, well, what, I, I, I knew you'd... No, no, they didn't do that at all. Look at this. And they were afraid with great fear. But storm's gone, y'all. Lake's calm. No shaking anymore. And they're afraid now with great fear. Matthew doesn't record this, but Mark and Luke both do. These guys went from being afraid of the wind and the waves, afraid of death and the abyss of the sea, to being afraid with great fear of their Lord. Being afraid with great fear of their master. Great fear. Mark's wording is megas phobos. Now you don't need to be a Greek scholar to figure out that means great fear. 
I'm going to get that tattoo. Y'all got these fancy Hebrew tattoos. I'm going to get Megaphobos right here on my forehead. <laughs> Megafear. You see, they thought that they had known him. They thought they knew what he was capable of. They thought they knew what he was doing. And now they see something they've never seen before. They thought they had a handle on him. They thought that they were safe in the boat with him. And then all this happened. And now, storm aside, they're standing face to face with more power than a whipped up lake. They're standing face to face with more power than wind or seismic activity. They're standing face to face with a God that they never knew before. Who had far more power than they had ever imagined. He was more than they knew. He was more than they could handle. He was capable of things that they had never dreamed about. And it scared the stuffing out of them. They were rightfully afraid of the man and all that he was. Great fear. And I guess so. And then we finish with this. The men marveled and they said to one another, Who then is this that commands even the winds and the sea? And they obey him. They didn't dare address him. He just rebuked them. So they start to chatter amongst themselves. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? He tells the winds and the sea what to do and they do it. They didn't have a shelf to put this on. They could see healing. Oh, that's awesome. Jesus healed the leper. That was awesome. Jesus touched Peter's mother-in-law. She had a fever. She got up and she waited. Oh, Jesus... We like you, Jesus. That's cool, Jesus. But this, what is this? Who is this man? Their little finite scaredy cat minds, Megas Phobos, couldn't process all of this. What can you say? What can you do? I was a little bit afraid of Bunky when he did what he did, you know? They, okay, they, they literally just couldn't even... Okay, that's where they're at. Me too. So now what do we do with all this? We look to application. Three F's. Because I failed multiple times. That's why there's three F's. Faith, fear, and fathom. Since we're using C terminology today, fathom. Faith, fear, and fathom. Faith is our first application point. Listen to me. Faith is the currency of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus chided His disciples for their lack of faith after they cried out to Him wondering if He cared about them. He could have poked fun at the fishermen. Mm, fishermen scared of the storm, are you? Or He could have fussed at them for waking them up. Tired, y'all. Leave me alone. But Jesus, right when He wakes up, right after He silences the sea, addresses that which is most important to Him in this matter, which is their faith. Or I guess really their lack of faith. 
So that which was of first importance to Jesus is of first importance to us today. So let me ask you this question, church, individually and corporately. How is your faith? Would Jesus commend or scold you for your faith today? He had marveled at the centurion's faith. Remember that? This Gentile Roman centurion had said, You don't need to, I'm not worthy of you coming into my house. All you got to do is speak the word. I'm a man under authority. I understand how this works. I speak a word and people do what I tell them to do. All you got to do is speak the word and my servant will be made well. And Jesus marveled at his faith. And then he looks at his disciples and says, Where is your faith? And now he's marveling at his disciples' lack of faith. Where is your faith? Do you still have no faith, you have little faith? Listen, they had tried everything they knew what to do. Their rowing didn't help them. Their worrying didn't help them. Their accusing him of not caring hadn't helped them. What would have helped? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, remembering who was asleep in the stern of the boat on a cushion. Maybe remembering all that he had done. Maybe remembering his teaching and his saying, let's go across the lake. Maybe looking to him sooner rather than later. Maybe remembering all that God had done for his people throughout history. I don't know, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Daniel, Isaiah, Ezra, Nehemiah, and on and on and on. Maybe panning out from their immediate situation, which was surely frightening and overwhelming, and trusting God that even if they died, God's purposes were going to be accomplished, and that is what matters. And I know that's hard to do, but it has to be done if we're going to walk in faith. And once we do remember who God is and what He's done, we have to have to, have to look to the stern of the boat and see Jesus asleep on the cushion, recognizing that nothing, absolutely nothing, is going to happen to us outside of His will if we are in Him. Romans 8, 28. You're like, every week. Yes, every week, if that's what it takes. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Storms, yes. Tragedies, yes. Your sin, yes. Nothing is going to happen to us outside of His will. And everything that happens to us is for our good. Where is your faith? Where is my faith? All things. And either that's true or it's not. And it is true. And faith is what appropriates that into our lives. Nothing else. After giving the very definition of faith in Hebrews 11 and then giving the examples of that faith all through that chapter, Hebrews 12, 1-3 says this, Wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, 
the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. That is what faith looks like for us now. We fix our eyes on Jesus. And we see our situation, our circumstances, our storms, our worries through Him. We look to Him first. We look to Jesus and we remember what He has done and consider that, what He has done, as sufficient for our need. This need. This storm. And make no mistake about it, y'all, storms are going to come. Now, I'm going to press that a little further and I'm going to say this, storms are going to come and Jesus is going to lead you into them. And He's going to go to sleep. Or so it seems. And we're going to cry out, do you not care that we perish? Get your eyes off of yourself. Get your eyes off of your circumstances and get your eyes on Jesus. That's faith. We run the risk of thinking that He doesn't care or that He can't do anything about it, but He does and He can. So we place our faith in that, in Him. And that's awesome. But it's not just awesome, it's a little bit scary too. So faith, now fear. Application point two, fear. Jesus' power is Frightening. Everybody read the line, the witch in the wardrobe? The kids ask about Aslan. Is he safe? And the beaver says, safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. Let me tell you what, y'all. Jesus ain't safe. And not only is he not safe, it is scary what he's able to do. These disciples, after seeing power that no one had ever thought of before, were filled with megas phobos. You ever look at God and just go, oh, no. I can't put this on a leash. I can't put this in a box. He's big and he ain't safe. I know we've talked about this before, but I'm going to ask you again. Are you afraid of the inherent power that is in God alone? Well, you may say, I don't have to be afraid of God because I'm saved. And you're right, mostly. But it shook these disciples to the core of their beings as Jesus stood there on this calm, glassy sea because of Him. And if we can't look at God and go, oh, woof. We don't know Him. It should shake us just like it shook them. And it should shake us on a consistent basis. It should remind us, listen to me, not to trifle with God. Not to make Him a side habit. Or maybe even an annoying have to on your checklist. That's the attitude that says, fine, I'll read my Bible today. 
It's a hassle, but I'll do it, I guess. And then look to God to be happy with us because we squeezed in our two chapters like a genuine hero of the faith. I don't want to beat anybody up, but this is the God who spoke the universe into existence that you're annoyed with. This is the God who gave His only Son as a ransom for your sins that you are expecting to be impressed with you. This is the Christ that Colossians 1.17 says that He is before all things and by Him all things consist or hold together. Hebrews 1.3 says it this way, "...who being the brightness of God's glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high." Get that. Jesus upholds all things by the word of His power. The word of His power. And if you aren't shaken by that power, you don't know this power. And I'm talking to myself, y'all. It would do us well to be afraid of God. To be shaken to the core of our being by the awesomeness of His power. We like to sing about His power and how His power can help us. And that's right. Nothing wrong with that. But it's not enough. I need to be like Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, who said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, the King of glory. I need to be like Jeremiah, who wept and said, I'm not worthy of all of this. God says, I'll make you worthy. No, we should not expect this God to pander to us. We should tremble before Him. Let Him be the lifter of your head, as Scripture says, as you approach Him like a crouching beggar. Sounds like Matthew 5.3, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. God, I have nothing. And He says, I freely give you all things in Christ. That's power. Now imagine if you don't know Him. You better tremble before this God. Because I promise you one day you will kneel before Him. And He will judge you according to your works. And if you're not in Christ, that is a terrible thing. Hebrews 10.31 It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I ain't scared of your God. You better be. Trying to scare me? Yep. You bet I am. Because the Word tells me that it's scary to fall into the hands of this God. Well, I ain't afraid. Better reconsider. God's wrath is coming upon the sons of disobedience and the nations should fear and tremble at this prospect. And we, even as believers, should fear for them. Fear. So we've seen faith... We've seen fear, and now we speak of fathom. The word fathom means to understand a difficult problem or an enigmatic person after much thought. And what I want to tell you today is that God is both unknowable and knowable. Knowable. He's noble too. 
The triune God is surely enigmatic. One God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, no, does not compute. Megas dumbus. I don't get it. Paul says it this way. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been His counselor, or who hath first given to Him, and it shall be recompensed unto Him again. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Who who can figure Him out? His ways are past finding out. You'll never plumb the depths of who God is. You'll never know Him completely. We will spend eternity getting to know Him better. And it's we'll never get there. We'll never exhaust the depths of who God is. But our capacity to know and love Him is just going to ever increase in eternity as, 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 as endless ages roll by and I learn something else about Him and I see something different about Him and I appreciate something else about Him and I'm just growing in my love and my appreciation for Him knowing that I'll never reach the end of it. That's going to happen. So he is unknowable. But here's the really, really, really good news. He's also knowable. Who can know him? The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. ESV says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You want to know God? He says, be brokenhearted. Be crushed in spirit. Lose your hope. Call out to me asleep in the stern on a cushion and know that you cannot save yourself. Call out to me and I, the unknowable, immeasurable God, will be near to you. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 say, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. Knoweth me! That I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. Saith the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The Lord, God. Don't boast in who you are, what you've got. Boast, if you're going to boast in anything, that you know and understand God. Because He delights in these things. The unknowable God delights in being known and understood. And let me tell you what, you're not just going to figure them out one day. So I don't know what storm you're going through today. I don't know what picture you have of God in your mind today. But I can say with assurance, if you are His, He has led you into this storm and He is going to show you a part of Him that you've never seen before. Here's the deal. He may not deliver you out of the storm. You say, well, that's not fair. Be careful. Because I can guarantee you this, He is going to show Himself strong in the midst of it. 
and you're going to know Him like you've never known Him before. And that is true joy. You say, well, I'd rather just not then. Be careful. Be very careful. God knows what you need. God knows what you want if you're His. And if you're not His, maybe this storm is to bring you to Him. To make you cry out to Him, Lord, save me, I am perishing. Because you are if you don't know Him. Last passage I'll read. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Jesus, this same Jesus who calmed the seas with a word. And they were quiet, they were silent. And the same Jesus that these disciples were megasphobos in the sight of says this. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I, this super crazy unknowable God, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This unknowable God became meek and lowly in heart, so that you can find rest for your soul. This unknowable, omniscient, omnipotent God became meek and lowly in heart so that you could cry out to Him in your need and say, Save me, I am perishing. And when we call out, even in the midst of the storm, you will find rest for your soul. I don't know why the storm has come. I don't. I don't know what the end of the storm is for you. I don't know. But I know that if you are His, He is there in the boat with you and whether He's asleep or awake, He will see you through till the end. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Lord, do you not care? Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you both care and that you are able to sustain us in the midst of the storm or to deliver us out of the storm. We trust in your ability and we ask this morning, God, that our faith would be focused on the person of Christ. Not our ability, not our wants, not our needs, not our desires, but God, that we would look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that we would be strengthened and that we would find rest for our souls and that you would marvel at our faith, God. By your doing, by your Spirit's doing. We are incapable in and of ourselves, but we are mega, super, duper capable by the power of your Spirit. So we rest in you. We trust in you, Jesus. And ask that you would do what we can't do. Silence the storm or carry us through it to the other side. Give us the faith that we need. Give us the proper fear of you that we need. And help us to know that you are unknowable and know you as much as we can know you. 
We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay and eat with us if you can, though.